I've never meant to hurt anybody. I never meant to put in jeopardy the Russian population. I never meant to break any laws here. That's WNBA star Brittany Griner tearfully pleading with a Russian judge in court last week. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling that it doesn't end my life here. The words she said didn't ultimately sway the court. She was sentenced to nine and a half years in a Russian penal colony after she brought less than a gram of cannabis oil into the country. That sentence, it devastated her family, her fans, her teammates. But as national security correspondent Karen DeYoung explains, the harsh sentence also meant something else. The Russians have said that they would not entertain any uh, negotiations over her release until after her sentencing. So we can anticipate now that, that those negotiations, hopefully, will move forward. Now the clock is ticking. Exactly. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 8th. Today, how the U.S. could negotiate for Griner's release. A prisoner swap is usually a complicated process, shrouded in secrecy. But now, one is playing out in the open. And this prisoner swap could mean a Russian arms dealer goes free in exchange for Griner and another American, security consultant Paul Whelan. Later in the show, we'll also talk with opinion writer Jason Rezaian, who has lived through something like this. Jason himself was detained in an Iranian prison for a year and a half, and he got out as part of a prisoner swap. Look, I'm asked often if you know I'm for or against these kinds of exchanges. And my answer is, that's not the right question. The right question is, what are we doing to, to deter hostage-taking in the first place? First, I asked Karen about how two countries who aren't exactly friendly with each other make a trade for prisoners. You have two people who are detained by Russia that the United States wants to get back and that it has declared wrongfully detained. They are uh, Brittany Griner, who is a female basketball player, part of the women's NBA. And the other person is a guy named Paul Whelan, whose case is a little bit more mysterious. He is a former Marine who was discharged from the Marines in, in 2008 after he was convicted of essentially stealing U.S. currency in Iraq. He was arrested in Moscow in 2018 when he was on a visit there, supposedly to what his family says was to attend the wedding of a fellow former Marine. The um, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, announced uh, in July that the United States had made a substantial offer, uh, which he did not define, for the release of both Griner and Whelan. Karen, before we get into these particular two cases of these Americans detained in Russia, what constitutes wrongful detainment? Like, what criteria does the United States have when considering whether one of its citizens is, quote-unquote, wrongfully detained by another country? Well, obviously, the first thing is arguing that someone is innocent. But there's much more to it than that. I think uh, 
whether the United States maintains that someone has been detained for other purposes, for political purposes, because they're just an American and there's problems with the Americans and they want to use them for some other purpose, whether they want to use the detention to influence U.S. policy, whether there's a determination that uh, the judicial system in that country is not independent and that essentially any trial will be rigged, whether they're being held in inhumane conditions, a lot of different different things that they that go into that definition legally in this country. This particular prisoner exchange, it, it's really high profile, but it's the only one that I feel like I've heard of in some time. But how often are prisoner swaps actually happening? Like, are there prisoner swaps that happen that aren't big news um, that we don't hear about until after the fact? Prisoner swaps are for a number of different reasons. The most famous ones tend to be groups of spies or individual spies exchanged for other spies hmm. who have been imprisoned by first the Soviet Union and Russia and the United States. And, and they're kind of acknowledged spies. There was a huge one in 2010 when 10 Russians who had been here as sleepers were swapped for four alleged Western agents. Yeah, so it sounds like in the past, at least for some time, these sorts of prisoner swaps are just almost like a normal part of the part relationship. Of the part, part of the, of the game. Spy versus spy game. Spy versus spy game. But there are lots of other things. There was Bo Bergdahl, the American serviceman who was taken by the Haqqani network uh, in Afghanistan around 2010, who was swapped in 2014 for five Taliban prisoners held by the United States. The video shows just one side of the handoff, but it is dramatic. Sergeant Bo Bergdahl seated in a truck. Overhead what appears to be a military aircraft flying cover. Not too long ago, there were three Americans who were hiking in um, northern Iraq and had gone unwittingly, supposedly, over the border into Iran, were arrested. No one was swapped for them, but they were eventually released because I think the Iranians determined that they weren't actually spies, even though they were charged with espionage. They were released in exchange for a fine that was not paid by the United States, but was paid by the Sultan of Oman. They had left in a convoy of cars from the Evin prison compound in Tehran. The Iranian news agency said Oman paid their bail, $1 million. The United States has always refused to pay any money for hostages. Mm -hmm. A lot of other countries don't feel the same way. A lot of countries in Europe have paid the Taliban, have paid other, uh, ISIS for releasing uh, hostages. So given that oftentimes in prisoner swaps, we don't hear about them until after the fact, why did Secretary Blinken make it known publicly that there was some conversation, there was something on the table at this point? Why, why disclose that publicly? What's the strategy there? I think that it had been on the table for some time, and they really hadn't gotten a response. And they wanted to put the Russians a bit in the corner. At the same time, they didn't want the Russians to release the information and spin it according to their own purposes or that it had something to do with Ukraine or mm -hmm. it was something something that they could use um, to show the Americans were either 
being inactive or non-responsive or somehow doing something nefarious that was keeping their people, U.S. people, from being released. Mm -hmm. And it also feels like, especially in the case of Griner, that was the case from the very beginning. It seemed like at first there was a strategy to be very quiet about it. And then there was a lot of public acknowledgement and outcry. And I, it seems like there's a lot of political pressure that the Biden administration is facing to to get her especially released. I think in, in the case of Brittany Griner, uh, because she was so prominent, because... Uh, I mean, she's like one of the best female basketball right, players right, right. now and in the I world. Th- and I think that it seems so unjust to right. so many people. And, and there was a lot of coverage of it anyway that the administration kind of had to sort of weigh in, and you really couldn't stop a lot of public comment about it. So as of right now, the United States and Russia have not come to an agreement on a swap. But there is speculation, right, that the United States could make an offer to Russia to release this Russian arms dealer in exchange for the release of Greiner and Whelan. Can you tell me who this arms dealer is and why he was detained in the United States. What what crime did he commit? This is Victor Boot, who is a 55-year-old Russian. He was for many, many, many years a very notorious arms dealer. There were movies made about him. He is uh, he, he most, had a nickname, right? Uh, Merchant of Death. Yes, that's what he was called. And he mostly did arms uh, sales in Africa, often to opposite sides of the same conflict. The um, DEA, other U.S. agencies had been after him for a very long time. He was ultimately arrested in 2008 in Thailand as part of a sting operation that was organized by DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. He was charged with having conspired to kill U.S. nationals. And he was convicted of that and sentenced to 25 years. So you ask, well, why were the Russians so eager to get him back? Yeah. Um, You know, there's lots of unconfirmed but pretty certain information about him that he was in the Russian military, that he was in the Russian intelligence service, but mostly that he was very close to a lot of people in the upper echelons of the Russian government from President Putin on down, that he has relationships with these people and that they want him out. I think that the Americans have offered to release him. Mm. Is that a good deal, would you say? This is a, an unusual thing to have to consider whose life and what, what is worth it, right? But right. just on its face, this is a notorious individual who seems to have very strong ties to put and in the Kremlin. And for a very long time and here the you, United States. Yeah, and here you have someone like Brittany Griner whose crime pales in comparison. I think you have to— You know, you look at what the president, President Biden, has said publicly and other officials have said publicly, this is our most important duty to ensure the safety of U.S. citizens. We will never stop to get them free. So there's that. I'm sure that, and there already has been since the news of this proposed swap has come out, a political criticism on exactly the lines that that you posited that people will say, this guy, you know, he's responsible for Who knows how many deaths? Who knows what he'll do when he gets out? But I think the political imperative to get 
particularly Brittany Griner, right. is is pretty big. And I think that the on balance, I think the administration has figured that this is more important than keeping this guy in prison. I mean, he's already been in prison for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. He's not that far from the end of his sentence. Maybe he served about half of it. Oh, I see. Um, so he's, he's already been in prison for a long time. I think he's so well known now that it would be difficult for him to sort of go back in business. And so the, the point becomes, well, has he been punished enough? Let's say that Russia and the United States come to an agreement on who to exchange. Can you walk us through what happens next? In most cases, what they do is they figure out a a sort of neutral place. Many times there, it's been the airport in Vienna. Oh, like the literal airport. Yes. They just find an airport. And, and they both just fly in and people walk across the tarmac and get on the other plane. You know, one of the most famous ones, again, going back to, to 1962, was the exchange of Francis Gary Powers, the uh, U-2 spy plane pilot for the CIA that crashed in Russia, and he survived, and Rudolf Abel, the Russian spy. They were exchanged. This, of course, was uh, during the Cold War when East Germany existed, and they were exchanged in a very famous scene where they walked across a bridge simultaneously in East Berlin. And, like crossing like yes, ships in the night. crossed so. each other just right. alone mm-hmm. while the Russians stood on one side and the Americans stood on the other side. So, so there's yeah. some kind of like orchestrated way that this occurs. Right. Oh, yeah. Very orchestrated. I guess like what is Russia considering and weighing about whether to accept this deal or not with I think the important subtext here of the war in Ukraine and the incredibly strained relationship right now between Russia and the United States. I, I think you can't you can't not consider that all all of the sort of other parameters of the U.S. Russia relationship right now, and so the Russians don't want to look weak. At the same time, they don't want to look unreasonable, and they also want to show that. Aside from all the isolation, the ostracism, the sanctions, the criticism of what Russia is doing in Ukraine, that at some level the relationship between the United States and Russia continues. Karen, what are the other arguments against pursuing this as a general policy you know, does it encourage the wrongful detention of Americans abroad? I just think of that saying we don't negotiate with terrorists and the sort of like pros and cons as to whether to in- even engage in a conversation um, or the whole thing around hostages. The payment of, of ransoms might encourage future kidnappings. Um, is that argument one that is widespread or prevalent in the United States, or especially in this case? Well, sure. I mean, that is the argument. The main argument is that it will encourage other countries to take American hostages, whether you're swapping, whether you're paying. You know, U.S. policy is that we will never, never, never pay. And I know there's criticism about that stance. Right, right. Because, again, a lot of Europeans who were kidnapped by ISIS were set free because Mm. a lot of money was paid. A number of Americans were decapitated because money was not paid. So 
you know, it's a it, there are arguments on on all sides, and obviously, if you're if you're the family of the victim in this case, where a ransom is requested and not paid, and that the hostage ultimately is killed, you don't think that was the right policy. Karen DeYoung is a national security correspondent for The Post. The story was produced by Sabi Robinson. After the break, we talk with Jason Rezaian about what it's like being on the other side of a prisoner swap. We'll be right back. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Jason Rezaian. I'm a global opinions writer for the Washington Post. In a previous life, I was our Tehran bureau chief until the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran took me hostage and held me for 544 days. Jason Rezaian knows a thing or two about prisoner swaps. He was part of one. It got him out of Iran. And recently, he's turned his attention to Griner's plight. So the truth is, the latest is uh, her conviction to nine and a half years in a penal colony. But, you know, from my perspective, that, although it's striking and audacious and horrifying, isn't major news because I expected that all along. Jason, you recently wrote that it took too long, perhaps, for the Biden administration to treat Griner's situation as a hostage situation. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Well, it's really difficult because you have multiple government agencies who have competing interests and also competing and and different sources of intelligence. So while the embassy in Moscow or the consular affairs section of the State Department may want to try and handle these cases of Americans detained in other countries in the typical diplomatic and and bureaucratic manners, when it's deemed politically motivated, it requires a different kind of intervention, an intervention at a higher level, whether it's the National Security Council or somebody like the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. When he gets involved, then you know that the U.S. government has made the ultimate determination that the arrest was politically motivated. In the Brittany Griner case, because of the timing of her arrest and the announcement of it by Russian authorities just a week after Russia invaded Ukraine, I, as someone who's been following this phenomenon in different countries for several years now, thought to myself, there's something more here than you know an American picked up on a drug charge in an airport. Uh, and as you've seen the, the case play out over the last several months, it seems very obvious to me and others who, who follow these kinds of cases that that's exactly what's going on. It's designed to be audacious and scary, uh, and it's designed to make the U.S. government look weak, and in some ways, it's really working. 
Yeah. And you've also written about how this is a growing problem, but it really took Griner's situation to put it on the national agenda. What was it about her situation in particular that that caused that? So this is a phenomenon that I've been following really since my release. But over the last year or so, my colleague Kate Woodsum and I have been working on a variety of projects, really looking at how a number of authoritarian states are using hostage taking uh, wrapped up in judicial proceedings to essentially exert leverage against the U.S. government. And for me, the Griner case had all those hallmarks from the very beginning. And it really brought this issue that a lot of people hadn't really paid any attention to, to the forefront. And obviously, there's been a lot of backlash by people saying, you know, she's a gay African-American woman. If she was Tom Brady or LeBron James, she would have been brought out months ago. The reality is her case has gotten so much more attention than any one of the previous cases of the dozens of Americans who've been held hostage by by foreign governments in recent years. And I think, you know, that's in large part because of her stature and her celebrity. But that stature and celebrity has mobilized a, really a global campaign in support for her. And so I think all of these Americans who are being held, uh, you know, black, white, Chinese, Venezuelan, you know, and when I say Chinese, I mean Chinese-American, Venezuelan-American, Iranian-American. We're all Americans. And this is a phenomenon that doesn't know race. It doesn't know gender. It doesn't know political orientation. It knows nationality. And Americans and citizens of allied countries, whether it's the UK, Canada, France, are increasingly being targeted. And it's taken the Brittany Griner case to raise it to that kind of awareness internationally. Mm-hmm. One of the options being considered right now to get Griner out of Russia, you know, she she was sentenced to this penal colony. It seems like such a harsh sentence, but the government is considering it seems a prisoner swap. As the prisoner in this situation, how much would would she really know about what's being considered by these two countries? Like, like would Griner know who the U.S. is swapping? Would she and her camp be kept largely in the dark? I think she personally would be kept in the dark. I didn't know anything about the details of my release that included the prisoner swap until it was happening. And so, you know, I I think the truth is that the principals and their loved ones and supporters know very little about what is going on behind closed doors. The unique thing here is that the Biden administration has come out and said that they've offered a trade to the Russians for an arms dealer convicted in, in the U.S., a man named Victor Boot. Uh, who was sentenced to more than 20 years for trying to um, to smuggle arms that would potentially kill Americans. Look, I'm asked often if uh, you know I'm for or against these kinds of exchanges. And my answer is, that's not the right question. The right question is, what are we doing to, to deter hostage taking in the first place? Because as long as it keeps happening, as long as foreign governments think that they can get away with this, they will continue to do it. And the only way to bring Americans home is going to be through concessions. Can you speak a little bit more to what that kind of deterrence would look like? So the U.S. government just last month put out an executive order. President Biden declared a a national emergency around hostage taking, calling it a threat to our national security, our foreign policy and our economy. This is a big and insidious problem that happens to affect small numbers of people. But because it affected small numbers of people and because it seemed like isolated incidents over the years, the U.S. government didn't put a lot of energy into figuring out how do we stop this. 
most of the officials I've spoken to over the years consider this to be a problem that we're always going to face in some form or another. I, for one, have said, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, we've put people on the moon and, you know, we've cured all kinds of diseases. We can figure out how to make it more painful and costly for foreign governments to take hostages. And one way that the Biden administration is looking at doing that is putting travel bans on officials who are involved in this sort of activity, who are complicit in foreign governments. Okay, Uh, before we turn to your questions, I just have one element at uh, the top, and it's something you all saw earlier today when the president signed a new executive order, uh, which provides the U.S. government expanded tools to deter and to disrupt hostage taking and wrongful detentions. That's Ned Price, a State Department spokesman talking to reporters last month. This executive order, among other actions, creates a comprehensive sanctions program as a tool to bring U.S. nationals held hostage and wrongfully detained home. And I've asked officials what that means, and they said, you know, we've written these these orders in an intentionally vague way because we're still figuring out what it means. Seizing their assets abroad and essentially making life more difficult for them. Uh, There is no single step we could take that would be a panacea. If that step existed, we would have taken it a long time ago, and all detained Americans would have been released a long time ago. Uh, But we do see these as important tools, uh, important tools that we will be in a position to wield quite effectively. Because so far, the way we approached uh, hostage takings of, of American citizens by foreign states is to act as though it's the first time that we're seeing this. We feign some outrage and we talk about how you know we demand the immediate release of this person. But you'll notice in the statements around Brittany Griner, the State Department is being much more assertive and forceful and calling it what it is, hostage taking. And I think we need to get comfortable with that because when we call it a wrongful or unjust detention, It leaves a lot of room for interpretation, and it leaves a lot of room for confusion for the ordinary American. And my my point would be that right now there are 40-something Americans being held hostage by foreign states. What happens when it's 400? Is the U.S. government going to put in the kind of effort and resources into freeing these people that's going to be required? Or are we going to be on our own every time we get on a plane and travel abroad? And if it's the latter... That's not a world that I necessarily want to live in and travel in. And I think that everybody has a vested interest in seeing fellow citizens freed from this kind of horrendous abuse. Mm. Yeah. And you've also written about the toll situations like this take on people's families. Can you speak to what Griner's family might be going through right now? Certainly. I mean, it, it's such a devastating impact on a family, on entire communities, in Brittany Griner's case, to the WNBA and her teammates. It's a hard thing to really wrap your head around because it's not a personal attack on Brittany Griner. It wasn't a personal attack on me. We fit a profile that the governments that took us hostage needed at that moment. But the damage that is wrought on these people and the people around them is so severe. And I can tell you that now, six and a half years after my release, I'm still unpacking it. You know, it, it's still a, a hard uh, slog some days. And, you know, you, you wonder to yourself, why me? And there's no good answer for it. All I know is that, that it changed my life immeasurably. And I think in Brittany Griner's case, she and her family, in, in some ways, even if she comes back tomorrow, 
are, are just at the beginning of their ordeal. Thank you for your time, Jason. It's my pleasure. Jason Rezaian is a global opinions writer for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernofsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rina Flores. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.